Hello, everybody. Terrence Lehu here with another episode of the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast, where we talk philosophy from the farm. Today's episode is going to be a little different than most. We're going to lean into the intellectual to explain the agrarian. Our tagline is philosophy from the farm, and today we're going to dive into what that means and what that philosophy is. To discuss this is our guest, Evan Thompson from Iroche Foucault and the Hardcore Philosophy Podcast. Evan has been a track athlete, kettlebell trainer, shoe salesman, infantryman, paratrooper, singer, acapella choir director, public speaker and MC, research assistant, fundraiser, humanitarian, entrepreneur, business consultant, photographer, YouTuber, and podcaster. He's even from Iowa. Together we'll be discussing what led to Evan starting his podcasts and the Iroche Foucault what is philosophy, and how it applies to food and farming. Evan Thompson, welcome to the show. Uh, I'm very happy to uh, be joining you. This is very exciting for me. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty of our discussion, why don't we start with something easy? Because I know that my pronunciation is always perfect on some of these things, even though my last name is French. Uh, how do you correctly pronounce E. Rochefoucault? Right there, you got it. I got it. The perfect. Right oh. Yep, you nailed it. Wow. E. Rochefoucault. Yep. Now, why was this the name you chose for kind of your overall brand? Yeah, definitely. So it's uh, this is from it's a uh, it's a play on the philosopher Francois de la Rochefoucault. So La Rochefoucault. And so this has created actually a little bit of a problem for my brand in its initial developmental stages. Uh, if ever, if you try to search in Google or YouTube or, you know, anywhere where I show up, if you try to search that, it tells you, do, did you mean La Rochefoucault? So I, I'm in a war. I'm in a war with a 17th century French philosopher who I like, um, which is, which is kind of great, right? But I, I like La Rochefoucault. Uh, he's, he's a great philosopher. He had a very specific style, though. And so um, I, I actually, he's definitely not, you know, in the pantheon of philosophers who I love most. I don't think he'd even make my top 10, to be honest. Um, not to say I don't like his work. I do very much like his work. Um, but he's definitely not my favorite. The reason why I chose him was because of his approach to philosophy. And let me see if you can tell the how obvious this is in the 17th century right he's a french philosopher he, he you know he had an interesting life but when he settled down and he started writing philosophy he he wasn't writing traditional philosophy in a way he was writing maxims and aphorisms you know again lists essentially and so he ended up putting together uh, his one his, his one primary book you know um is you know maxims and uh, reflections um was 504 lines, essentially 504, uh, you know, a list of 504 things. And so that, and so that was how he developed his philosophy, all these, again, one-off quick ideas. And this wasn't laziness. It was him conforming his philosophical approach to the times. And so from his perspective, the times were, they were fast. People didn't have time. Uh, modernity was taking everybody's attention. Uh, nobody was paying attention to each other anymore. You know, so he had to be very quick he had to be, you know, he had to be very witty. Uh, he had to grab people's attention very, very, in a very quick and efficient manner. It kind of sounds like today. And that format as well 
that kind of sounds like a modern tweet or a modern Instagram post, as you very well know. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's my approach quite directly, just writing maxims on Instagram and, and interacting in Twitter in ways like that. That kind of sounds like a modern philosophical approach. And then at the same time, it was meant to, um, his, the way he developed all of this or developed much of his writings, his maxims and aphorisms in writing, was through speaking. So he spent time in French salons in debate, in conversation. And so he built these over time and modified them through conversation, through interactions with people. And so in my view, I'm like, okay, what's the modern salon? YouTube, podcasts. And so there, <laughs> instead of La Rochefoucauld, Eve Rochefoucauld. I like that. And really, because that's the way it does work. There are, there are certain ways that information has been communicated for hundreds of years. Let's look at Aesop. I mean, at the end of the day, his stories were to provide a maxim or a moral, some of which have literally been around for centuries in every culture. It's really a handy way of, uh, how would I phrase it, transferring or handing off knowledge in a way that almost anyone can understand. Yeah. No, and, and, there, and, and that would be I, maybe the third and final point about La Rochefoucauld as well. Um, he viewed a lot of philosophy at his time to be highbrow, uh, to contain all of this wordy, arcane language, to be concerned with uh, subjects that didn't concern people's lives. Um, and so La Rochefoucauld's philosophy is not these, you know, developing abstract principles that don't apply to the, you know, in the encounters that one has within their life. They're all deeply personal. They're all deeply, uh, uh, human in a way. And, um, and, and, and so I very, I, I very much agree with and appreciate that type of a style. But, but if you were to look at many of his views, right, if you were to really dig deep into his views and don't get me wrong, I like his views, you'll, you'll see an intense, disagreement between myself and La Rochefoucauld. <laughs> um, he, uh, he is a bit of a pessimist bordering on a cynic at times. Um, and, and, and I appreciate interacting with, with this type, with that type of a mind, with those types of ideas, because they kind of balance me out, but I'm most definitely, um, not a cynic. Um, I, I am, I am, I'm, I'm very much on the side of optimism and, and, and a positive outlook. Now, I really do want to dig a little bit deeper in that. So because we're going to be talking about philosophy a little bit here, how do we define philosophy? I know a really easy thing, which, by the way, just to plug for you, the uh, I'll link to it in the show notes, but you wrote a really good article on why philosophy should be more than simply the ivory tower. So that will be linked in the show notes for people. But if we can just get a kind of as brief as we can, what is philosophy really? Yeah. Okay. So I would say it's, I would say there's three different aspects, uh, in very simple terms. Uh, first it's a tool to think and live well. Uh, second, it's a mechanism that makes different ideas accessible, particularly competing ideas or ideas that are very different from one another. And third, finally, 
It's the glue between first principles. And by that, I mean it's the connector or facilitator between the scientific and religious methodologies. And that's about as simple as I can make it, <laughs> in, and, in my view. Well, that's actually, that is a great distillation of it. Because, so, as you know, what our kind of tagline here is philosophy from the farm, because what we're trying mm -hmm. to do, and that's part of the reason we have you on the podcast right now, is to discuss what it is that kind of motivates, what are the principles and ideas that really motivate some of these farmers to do things the way they do it. Because, I mean, they are tools on how we think. They're, we're trying to make these ideas accessible. It's really trying to describe almost a mindset and a way of life in many cases. And I really like the idea of tying first principles together because I'm not sure how many of our listeners have heard of this, but I'm hearing more and more people talk about first principles lately and how... And because we're so far removed so, from so many things, that's one of the things I like about agriculture is it literally is taking us back to the basics, seed and ground. Seed grows into mm. plant, plant is harvested yeah, it doesn't for food. Yeah, there's principles of that. No, I mean, it is literally, uh, I think it was Wendell Berry who's like known as the, one of the philosopher, pseudo-philosophers almost of uh, agriculture here in the natural realm, the eco-agriculture, but the soil is the great connector is the beginning and the end of all of us. I'm kind of paraphrasing it, but it, it really goes back to literally the first principle. And I mean, almost every myth that I'm aware of involves man being created from dirt in some way, shape or form. And I think at least a good many people are familiar within the biblical story. Adam is created from the dust and he's told to the dust he will return. Um, and we shall know a plant by its fruit. Exactly. It, so much of this, because agriculture is, for many centuries, the thing everyone understood and was accessible to, it's almost the reverse now. Now what we're doing mm. is trying to go back to explain what it is that makes agriculture understandable, rather than for hundreds of years it was the thing that everyone understood. Yeah, well, I mean, in... And, 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 and in the first sense, just, just to make sure that this isn't, this isn't lost in the idea, and I'm not accusing you of this in any way, but uh, it's obvious, it, it is a good thing in my mind that we have a differentiated economy and that 90% of the population isn't required to be a farmer. I yeah? totally agree. Yeah. And thank <laughs> you for saying that. Because I, we've talked about before people listening, not everyone should farm. I cannot begin to start with how farming is not a easy career. It is one of those things where people either have a passion for it or they don't. And I'm not saying you have to have passion for everything you do. I am never going to get on that bandwagon. But what I'm saying is that agriculture is important because you eat. If you eat, you should be concerned with the food you're eating. Know a farmer. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, and, and like, I actually, uh, I, I just recovered from a, a pretty serious illness. <laughs> oh, really? Um, yeah, I, w I was, uh, I've, I've, I've been better now for the last couple of days, but I was out for literally one week and, uh, and, and it, and it was a foodborne illness that I, that I got. And, and it was very frustrating. We, my wife and I definitely did some serious reflection. I mean, we, we do eat very well mm -hmm. and we're, you know, we're very, 
fortunate to live here in Thailand and have a lot of access to a lot of locally grown food, which is great. But, you know, we're not always perfect. And we we really had to sit down and said, OK, let's let's not let this happen again type of a thing. But, yeah, no, it's fundamental in, in so much of philosophy. I mean, you can even go you can go back to the Greeks um, uh, when you see so much uh, so much principle within the philosophy. A lot of it is food and drink based. Um, one, on the one hand, just due to risks, you know, within any good uh, system of how do we think about the world in general, uh, you have to consider risks and, and food and water in particular are potentially risks. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also an understanding, you know, the, the impact the diet, uh, the impact that balanced diet in particular has on one's overall well-being. And one's overall well-being is inextricably related to every aspect of their life. So, yeah, no, definitely. Uh, you you ignore uh, what you eat at your peril. Mm-hmm. And just a side note, I mean, people, the Judeo, the old Jewish codes, the laws, a lot of it was about dietary and health. There were reasons. They lived mm. in the desert in a time where food didn't always keep very well. So when people go on about pork, guess what? It was necessary back then. Yeah. It kind of, kind of interesting how that works. Anyway, no, I, I'm going I, down a I rabbit have, trail. No, no, wait, it's fine. This is no, but this is great though. Like, cause there's, um, there's something else that, that I've, that I've thought about as well, uh, kind of more related to, uh, my, my career, I suppose, in like international development, humanitarian affairs. Um, when you look at many, all of these laws that, that we, that we stupidly and uneducatedly laugh at today in the Bible about like shellfish and, 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 and fish regulation and meat regulation and, you know, how on earth could, a, could the almighty make such a absurd commandment? Um, I always suggest to those people, have you read the UN common fisheries policy? <laughs> what, what, what is that exactly? Um, it's, it's the exact same thing. It just, instead of saying God has commanded that this shall be that, you know, it's according to UN section three, okay, (laughs) but, but it's essentially the same thing for the same reason. It's, um, if we have overfishing, we lose all the fish. Mm -hmm. If we, but if we don't eat any fish and we don't lose any fish, several million people don't have a livelihood, Mm -hmm. man. We need to find a way to balance this out. You must eat fish sometimes, but you can't eat all these kinds of fish all the time. <laughs> yeah. Now, smart. Kind of, it's a smart it's genius. It, again, I don't think, I think it's really easy for us, quote unquote, moderns for the moment to look down our noses at earlier time periods and laugh at them, but really it worked. They survived. There's a reason why they survived. Some of these things aren't as cockamamie as we like to say they are. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, we, we, we absolutely, hopefully are uh, better than, better than we were previously while at the same time recognizing that we are here by the unfathomable grace, luck, talent, fortitude, and industry of all of our ancestors. Mm-hmm. I was just reading that quote a couple of days ago that we inherit the earth from our ancestors 
temporarily or something along those lines. The Native American proverb basically just remember we're here only to take it on one hand and then give it back to our children on the other. And that's mm. that's important to remember, especially we we inherit the earth earth temporarily from our ancestors and but but we but we don't own it. We're borrowing borrowing it from our children. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's it. At I will butcher quotes. I'm sorry. That's folks. If I'm not reading from a script, that's just the way it goes. Now you touched on it a little bit, but can we go into your background, a little biographical sketch for the audience? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, well, so I would say maybe the first uh, facet is my core interest and in why the hell I would love to come on any podcast called The Intellectual Agrarian. I was born and raised in Iowa. Uh, so yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't grow up on a farm, but, uh, but my, my grandpa had a farm, family farm. I spent summers there working, loved it, learned a hell of a lot there. But from Iowa, born and raised, um, but from there, uh, joined the military. Um, I served in the 82nd Airborne Division for five years uh, out in North Carolina, which is, I hope everybody's doing okay. I hope we're able to rescue all the uh, current people in the uh, in Hurricane Florence. Mm-hmm. Need assistance right now. But um, uh, I imagine the 82nd Airborne Division is very busy today. So I imagine they've had a very long night. Um or they will be having a very long night. Uh, after that, um, moved to DC, uh, went to grad school at uh, George Washington University. And from there, after, after we kind of finished up that little period, we really wanted to explore. We wanted to get out of the country. We wanted to live and work abroad. And I found an opportunity in Thailand and we took it and moved here. And now we've been in Thailand for about uh, two years. So I would say that's the, the general bio. What made you decide to start Iroche Foucault and the Hardcore Philosophy podcast, the dialogues, Art of Intellectual War? Again, all that link will be linked in the show notes. And Realpolitik. Yes, and Realpolitik. <laughs> but it's, it all began with Hardcore Philosophy. Um, so um, th- this has been something I have been in the back of my mind for quite a long time, I, I, I wanted to speak. I, I wanted to produce intellectual work, creative work. That's kind of how I saw my life in a way. Um, and I, and I also saw, and I also kind of had a similar, you know, if we go back again, why I chose the name E. Rochefoucault, that's also right. I didn't just invent that as a good reason, you know, that, that, that La Rochefoucault, recognition from 400 years ago or from 350 years ago is a similar recognition to what I saw today. Um, you know, plus all of the particular modern factors, right? So the lack of, you know, there's this ivory tower attitude within the philosophies dealing with arcane pedantic knowledge, um, and, and not getting into the roots or the seeds of the issue in, everybody's lives. I believe philosophy is supposed to interact with everyone. There's, uh, I could actually, you know, use a very interesting quote that, uh, <laughs> again, another person who's definitely not my favorite, but, you know, we should respect all interesting and good ideas, no matter where they come from. Uh, but from mm-hmm. Marx, uh, we should be farmers in the day and philosophers at night. And that's something I do generally agree with, you know, and that 
you know, I, I believe philosophy is for is for everyone. And so and it's meant to be accessible and I want to make it accessible, you know. And I, I don't call myself a philosopher by any means. I I call myself a storyteller. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like I'm I'm trying to tell the story of philosophy, the story of ideas. I don't believe I'm nearly clever enough to create new philosophies, but I'm OK with that. I, that's not <laughs> that's not false humility. It's we are standing on the shoulders of 2,500 years of geniuses. And meanwhile, our academic departments and humanities departments and philosophy departments are creating new, arcane, shallow, particularist philosophies that interact with almost nobody. And I wonder why. And so... (laughs) It's it's a confusing idea to me. So it's like, no, I'm going to do the exact opposite. I'm going to read all of the old books. I'm going to tell the stories of all the old philosophy, of all the philosophy that got us here, of, of all the philosophy that we're actually using, that people are actually living by, that, that societies as a whole um, are actually um, living by and being governed by. I want to understand those things, and I want to make those ideas accessible to the widest possible audience. And I want to give it away for free because I believe that philosophy education should be free. I think anybody uh, uh, paying for it, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't think that should cost money because when you look at the history of philosophy, um, it's all available because it's all old and any old book is available for free. And so that, that's kind of, I, I suppose, um, a, a big part of the start. And if you look at, especially my hardcore philosophy podcast, that is the kind of the flagship, the main brand I have. Um, now, you might be familiar with the hardcore history podcast. Yes, obviously, I stole the title. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wasn't, I, I was absolutely trying to associate myself with Dan Carlin's work. I love Dan Carlin. I love his approach. Again, he's not a historian. He's a storyteller of history. I'm not a philosopher. I'm a storyteller of philosophy. Um, and, and I want to reach people with outstanding stories about the history of ideas. And also, I would say the other kind of element is I, I want to tell the good story, the good ideas, mm-hmm. the things that find meaning, the things that build us up and make us strong, that make us effective, that make us ethical, um, because so much of when you look at philosophy, especially in the past 50 to 100 years, it's deconstruction. Mm-hmm. It's how can we tear down meaning? How can yeah. we tear everybody down to the core? And, and the problem with this, actually, and, and Nietzsche points this out, this is actually technically true. I, I can tear you and me and everyone down philosophically to nothing. I can tear you down to your roots and I can be right. I will be correct. But what does that do for you or me or anybody else? How does that help us live? Because I said philosophy is a tool to live and think well. I said philosophy is a mechanism to make ideas accessible. I said it's the glue between first principles, not the agent that precipitates the decline in our ability to function. And if it is the agent that precipitates our ability or the decline in our ability to function, then what's it for? Why should we be using this tool? How is it helping us? How is it advancing society? And so when we see 
broadly a decline in people having an interest in this subject, or at least in the subjects as it is popularly or um, primarily disseminated through the university structure or through institutions, it, it's not surprising to me you know, uh, to, to see people have less and less interest in a field that's telling, that's continually telling them, here's why you know nothing, here's why you're wrong about everything that you think and believe, and here's how you can come to know nothing, and here's how you can be wrong about everything that you think and believe. Now, I'm not advocating for some absolutism, right? I'm not advocating for, okay, well, therefore, let's be reactionaries and respond in the exact opposite way. No, there's a middle path. I'm going to fight for it. I really like that distinction you made about storytellers versus philosophers because, like we mentioned Aesop earlier, he's conveying what could be considered philosophical principles, the maxims at the end of the stories, through storytelling. Ryan Holiday, his books, Ego is the Enemy, The Obstacle is the Way, which are kind of books on stoicism, are nothing but collections of stories about different people who use these principles through their lives. Yeah. It's the stories that bring meaning to these principles when, it, if you just try to make it more abstract, it makes it inaccessible. Language. If yeah, sorry. So, sorry, no, sorry. Because, go ahead. Because any, because any great philosophy, at, the, at some level, you know, if you keep on pushing it further and further and further, it must act as a guide for you at some point. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, it is your life. And, and you are a subject. You have particulars. You ha there are different things about you, even though you and I are going to share a lot of things. Before we started, we're both INTJs. Oh, my God. Think of how much we have in common here. You know, we're like we're both from the Midwest. Like like we're both Americans from the Midwest who are INTJs and who have philosophy inspired podcasts. Like, wow, look at all of this that we have in common here. But at the end of the day, there's going to be a million differences between you and I. But we both need to be able to interact with some gigantic tool set of, of ways in which to move forward. And so at the end of the day, any philosophy, no matter how particular, must act as a guide for as many possible people as, as it can, if not, again, universally, anyone. So any good philosophy must make an effort at acting universally. And, and again, another charge against a lot of the modern pop, um, yet expensive, paywalled philosophy today is it's not doing that. It's, it's not a guide for everyone. It's, it's particularism. It's extreme particularism. So it needs to be scalable. It needs to be able to work for the individual and be able to translate to multiple people. Ah, that's actually, I never thought about it in economic terms like that. I, I, accept, I accept your use of the word scalable. Well, thank you. <laughs> We hope you've enjoyed the first half of this interview with Evan. Be sure to listen to the second half next week when we discuss Thomas Jefferson's agrarian beliefs, the philosophy of American freedom, and how Jefferson became the person to articulate that belief. Big thanks again for Evan for being on the show. You can learn more about his work by going to irochefoucault.org. I'm still pretty impressed that I can pronounce that right. But if you need help with the spelling much like I do, check out the link in the show notes. Thanks so much for your time and for listening to the show. It really does mean a lot. Please subscribe whatever your podcast player of choice is. 
And while you're there, we'd really appreciate if you left us a review, especially on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. It really helps out and grow the show family. Thanks again for listening. This has been Terrence Lahue and the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast, reminding you to keep farming the dream.